My name is AJ Oots. I'm a member of King's Cross Church here in Charleston, South Carolina, where I help with discipleship efforts with KCY and community groups. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to this story, visit kingscross.org. Okay, um, we have turned the page, so to speak, from chapter one to chapter two of the story. Chapter two, I'm calling Covenant. Um, by the way, if you um, have, or if you're using one of these little notebooks and you're missing any pages, we have copies of everything um, out there. Where are they? At the welcome desk. And so if you're missing a page, a devotional page, or a chapter divider, you can stop by and pick those up. Um, this morning, what happens is we, we leave behind the origins of the world and our place in it, and we're entering into a five-week period that's focused on four men and their families through whom God's covenant with his people will become the clear focus. So this is what's happening over the next five weeks. In chapter two of the story, we will encounter the father of three of the world's five major religions, the patriarch of all 12 of Israel's tribes, the star of a feature-length animated DreamWorks movie, and today, true story, and today we're going to zoom in on one of the most well-known events in all of the Bible. It's Noah and his famous ark. Now, if today is the first time you've ever stepped into a church, or maybe the first time that you've been back in church for a long, long time, maybe you have zero religious background at all, and if that's the case, can I say we're glad you're here? I cannot imagine a better time to begin attending church than this year in this series, because by the end of the year, you're going to have an understanding of the overall story of the Scripture. But if that's you, and you have no church background, no religious background, I'd be willing to bet that you've heard of Noah and the Ark. This is just an unbelievably well-known story. It is, by the off chance that you're unfamiliar with it, it is a cute, heartwarming story. It has been used for... Uh, motifs in baby nurseries. It's painted on the walls of children's areas in churches all over the world. It's a, a theme for summertime VBSs. Uh, it, it's read as a bedtime story to children. It's this wonderful story of the time when God, because of the sin of mankind, killed almost every living thing on the planet with a cataclysmic global weather event. Sleep well. <laughs> like, this is what. <laughs> so, you know how, like, if you call the IT department at your office, or um, if you call tech support for your phone, or heaven forbid, if you're old enough to have ever had to call, like, the help number for the cable company, well, the very first thing that they tell you, have you turned it off and turned it back on again? Yes, this is every single time. Some of you are in IT, right? This is what you, and like 90% of the time, much to our frustration, it works, right? This is 
essentially what happens in Genesis 6 through 9. The story is focused on Noah and his ark, but really what's happening is God's turning the world off and turning it back on again. If you're following along in the devotional reading plan, um, you've read the whole story this week. We don't have time to get to every verse of it uh, this morning, but what I will acknowledge right up front is that um, the, the historical account of the global flood and Noah and his ark creates some very real, very practical questions. Questions like, was it an actual worldwide flood or was it just like a regional flood? And because the people who lived there didn't travel very much and they didn't have the internet, they kind of thought it was worldwide. Well, it's worldwide. And there's both geologic and um, anthropological evidence of that that we don't have time to unpack this morning. Well, would all those animals even fit in the ark? I mean, come on, like two of every, and there's seven of some of them. So like, yes, uh, they would, because God's instructions in Genesis 6 was that Noah was to bring the animals on according to their kind, which opens up the idea of according to species, not necessarily every individual variant therein. So, so yes. Well, what about the food? What about the waste? I don't even want to think about the smell of the art. Like, what about fresh water? What all those things, how do they deal with those things? Surprisingly, and if you look around, you can find these things. Even secular scientists agree that the dimensions and the layout of the ark, the length of time that it was afloat, according to Genesis, with some basic knowledge of naval architecture and zoology needs, it is entirely possible from a logistical standpoint. Like that, that is not a problem. Even people who do not believe in the Bible the way we do or believe in Jesus the way we, even they would say, well, yeah, that could have worked out if you, if you assume a few basic things. Well, how'd Noah round them up? Like, did they all go in in one day? Were there like first-class suites? Where like the elephant had his own room, but the squirrels and the gophers, they're like down in gin pop, like Leo and Titanic, you know, and they're like, is this? How to, what about ventilation? All good questions. But hear me. Genesis 6 through 9 is not in the Bible to shed light on shipbuilding or zoology or geology or meteorology. Genesis 6 through 9 is in the Bible to shed light on theology. Who is God and how is he working to redeem and restore a lost and broken world? This is why we have Genesis 6 through 9. And I think the overarching biblical truth is the reason the Holy Spirit has given us these chapters in the story of Noah is simply this, that God is faithful to keep his covenant. If you don't take anything else away from this morning, God is faithful to keep his covenant. Hear me. This is not about what you can learn from Noah. It's not about obedience or leading your family well. Or th This story is about God. And so you're going to notice through the course of the sermon there isn't anything for you to do. Because it's not about you. 
This is God revealing himself to his people. We see in this historical account at least four truths about God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. Let's walk through them. The first is this. That God's covenant is not contingent on you. God's covenant is not contingent on you. Roughly about a thousand years have passed since Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden in Genesis 3. We looked at that last week. During those thousand years, mankind has multiplied on the face of the earth the way that God commanded him to, but also our sin has multiplied greatly. Genesis 6, 5 through 8 says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That Hebrew word that's translated regretted, it does not mean that God made a mistake. It conveys an emotion. So one commentator that I read this week said it it carries with it. It's the same type of word in Hebrew that would have been used for like the way a bride felt if she was left at the altar. Because she's been sinned against so much that she regrets that it ever got to that point. This is not that God made a mistake. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. If you skip down to verse 18, God tells Noah of his plan, and then he adds in verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives, with you. And as we're about to see, this is not a new covenant. It is the original covenant that God had made with his very good creation, including Adam and Eve. And so when God says, I will establish my covenant with you, what he's doing is he's taking that original covenant with creation and he's extending it to, it's being reaffirmed through Noah and his family. And so here in chapter 6, God says he's going to do it. And then in chapter 9, he fulfills that promise after the flood waters subside. We read this, Genesis 9, 8 through 17. This little floods come and the waters have, have abated. Verse 8 of Genesis 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So, not a trick question. Who established the covenant? God did. And what part did Noah play? None. Because God's covenant was not contingent on Noah or you or me. God's covenant is contingent on God alone. And just like in the beginning, God created the world. He created men and women in his image and he made one-way promises about how he would deal with that very good creation. And what's happening here, despite the horror of escalating sin and this apocalyptic global flood, is that God is faithful to keep his covenant. Just so that you know I'm not reading that into the story, let me show you how God's covenant faithfulness shines through, regardless of what his sinful, rebellious image makers or image bearers do. Look at this slide. I'm going to read it through, but I think it's more visually impactful if you can see it. In the beginning, which we just left in chapter one, God makes a covenant with creation and he makes man in his image. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to rule over the animals. He gives them plants for food and he emphasizes the great value of human life in Genesis four in the story of Cain and Abel. And then we get here And God says to Noah, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And he talks in chapter 9 and verse 6 about how man is made in his image. He tells them to be fruitful and increase. He he tells them the animals are going to fear them. They will be over the animals. He gives them the animals for food. But he gives them this um, side note, not to eat meat with blood in it. They're they're not to eat raw animals. And then he reaffirms the value of human life in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 9. When the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to record the events that happened in the life of Noah, he wasn't concerned with the waste removal system in the ark. He wanted Israel and you and I to know that God's covenant faithfulness isn't contingent on anything you do or anything you don't do. God's covenant faithfulness is contingent only on God. Second, God's plans are not altered by you. His covenant's not contingent on you. His plans aren't altered by you. This question comes up a lot, and it's a good one. People will ask, if God knew we were going to sin, why did he create us? If God knew that this is what was coming, why did he unleash it at all? Because it seems like things have gotten pretty bad. And so why did that happen even to begin with? And I'll tell you that I won't pretend to know fully the the mind, the heart, the motivation, the will of God, apart from those places in the scripture where he's revealed those things to us about himself. 
So I'm not sure that I have a perfect answer to that question because I think to have a perfect answer for that question, I would have to understand the mind of God fully, and I don't. Here's what I think is perfectly clear, though. Our sin, our rebellion, our unfaithfulness does not rattle God. And here's how I know that's true. Because despite this do-over, despite God turning the world off and turning it back on again, if you'll forgive kind of the callous nature of that idiom here, but um, his plans for creation don't change. The pattern of creation in Genesis 1 is repeated in Genesis 6 through 9. It, it, doesn't, it isn't altered, it's just done again. It, it's not like God pulled together Jesus and the Holy Spirit and looked down in the latter parts of Genesis 5 and said, well, plan B, boys. This one isn't working. That, that, that is not, God's plans weren't altered by the sin of mankind. Watch how his plans remain unchanged. Another slide, just so you can visualize it as I walk through it. If you look at the pattern of creation in Genesis 1, God's Spirit hovers over the abyss. He divides the waters then he, in order. Then he separates dry ground. Then he populates the sky with winged creatures. Then he makes the creatures in the livestock. Then he creates man in his image. And then he gives them this command to be blessing. Uh, he gives them a blessing and commands them to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over the creation. Post the flood, in chronological order, when he reaffirms this covenant with Noah, he sends a wind over the water, he regathers the waters in chapter 8, verse 2. Dry ground appears in verses 3 through 5. Noah sends out a raven and then a dove into the sky in verses 6 through 12. Then the creatures come out of the ark. Then God reaffirms man as his image bearer, blesses them, and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. Hear me. God was not caught off guard. His plan did not change. He's not scrambling to react. And hear me, he's not surprised by your life choices either. He, he is not caught off guard at what you're doing and trying to figure out a plan B for you. Because his plans aren't altered by you. He knew, he knows, and he will know everything that's happening in your life. Can I just encourage you, you don't want a God who has a whiteboard filled with alternative plans in case you turn right instead of left on Tuesday. That, that's not the God that you want. You want a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever because that God can be trusted. And that God's word is unchanging. And that God's covenant promises and plans are not altered by you and me. Friends, that is a good thing. I do not need the God of the universe changing his plans because of me. Some of y'all know me, man. Like, I could be a knucklehead. <laughs> Some of you are like, I, don't, I wouldn't even change my plans based on that dude. Right? <laughs> Hear me, God's plans aren't altered by you. Speaking of promises, this third truth that we learned about God's covenant faithfulness 
in Genesis 6 through 9 is that his promises don't depend on you. Now, one caveat, because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Okay, so um, setting aside common grace, the blessings of which, ever, like the sun shines on the wicked and the righteous alike, right? things like beauty, weather, love, th- these things are common graces that all of God's creation enjoys. A- apart from that, you benefiting from or walking in the fullness of or being blessed by God's promises surely depends on you. But so that, I'm not talking about your benefit. I'm talking about the promises themselves. God's promises themselves don't depend on you or me. Listen to how we're described in Genesis 6-5. This is before the flood. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. Now, notably... After the flood, God knows that our nature remains corrupted. He isn't under any illusion that we're suddenly post the flood going to return to him and start living righteously before him all the days of our life. Genesis 8, 20 to 22. This is post flood. Noah built an altar to the Lord because he's off the ark. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. God had told him to take seven of them, not two. So don't let that rattle you. There's leftovers there. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, and then he starts talking about common grace, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We haven't changed after the flood. He knows, oh, no, no, this is still an evil people. It's exactly what happens is what God said was going to happen. These eight people who have been saved from this worldwide catastrophe, they have been brought through the most harrowing, unimaginable year of their lives, which um, that's how long Genesis says they were on the ark. If you go back and add it up, is a year and 10 days. So it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but they were on the boat for a year and 10 days. That's a long time. These eight people are brought through that. They come out the other side of the flood by God's grace. They are brought into or or established in the covenant promises of God in Genesis 9, 1 to 17. By Genesis 9, 21, Noah is passed out drunk and naked. He is sinned against by his son Ham in verse 22, and he's cursing Ham's children in 9, 25. In eight verses... And just like the pattern of creation in Genesis 1 is repeated in Genesis 6 through 9, so too the pattern of sin that was established in Genesis 3 is repeated again in Genesis 9. And by the end of it, Noah, just like Adam, is naked and ashamed. And any hopes you had that Noah and his family might succeed where Adam and his family had failed, don't even make it out of chapter 9. 
Genesis 9, 29, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. But the promises of God did not die with Noah. Any more than they had died with Adam. Because the promises of God did not depend on Adam, and they did not depend on Noah, and they don't depend on you. If you're paying attention, if you're thinking it through, that is really good news. Because that means the promises of God stand even if you've rejected them right up until now. And the promises of God are true even if you've doubted them up to now. The promises of God do not go away if you fall back into sinful patterns of behavior that you just can't seem to get away from. Even if you made vows and promises to God and you know that what you had really good intentions to do last year didn't come through and you feel like, well, maybe God's going to pull away from me. No, because the promises of God don't depend on you. They depend on him. So it doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter what regrets you have. It doesn't matter what choices you wish you could have back. The promises of God are still available to you. The fullness of life that is promised by God through faith in Christ to all those who will repent from their sin and turn to him, they are still available for you. It doesn't matter how many times you've had to repent and come back because the promises of God aren't dependent on you. They're dependent on him. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that they depend not on you, but on Jesus. Paul writes, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why through him we offer our amen to God for his glory. Hear me. One of the lessons from Genesis 6 through 9, you need more than a fresh start. Like if you could metaphorically turn your life on and, or off and turn it back on again, it wouldn't be enough. You, you need more than a fresh start. You need more than a reset. It's not enough. Because before you could even get going again, despite all of your best intentions, no matter how hard you try or what vows you take, you're going to find yourself naked and ashamed before God again. What you need is not a fresh start. What you need is someone else. What you need is someone whose promises never fail. What you need is someone whose plans never change. What you need is someone whose covenant is from everlasting to everlasting. You need someone whose faithfulness is so sure, whose faithfulness is so proven, so eternal, so perfect that you can rest in it, that you can build your life on it that you can trust your eternity to it. What you need is not a fresh start. You need for God to do for you what you can never do for yourself. That's why 
Despite the failure and the death of Noah in Genesis 9, this passage is so filled with hope because it points us not to Noah, but to God himself. And it gives us this fourth truth, that God's faithfulness is a sign for you. His covenant, his promises, his plans, they don't depend on you. He is faithful to his covenant. And it's that faithfulness that he gives as a sign to you. Look back quickly at Genesis 9, 12 to 13. Verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. A sign of a covenant. A sign of faithfulness. And now the bow of God's wrath, once strung tight, and pulled back and unleashed on the earth. It has been hung on the walls of the sky, never again to be pointed down at the earth, but now pointed up. Almost as if somehow, if the wrath of God is going to be unleashed on sin again, it will have to be unleashed on God himself. Here's what he says in verse 16 to 17. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. The everlasting covenant between God and every living creature on all flesh that is on earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on earth. And what you're going to see, friends, again and again and again as we walk through the story together this year is that God will give his people signs of his covenant faithfulness. Monuments of stone, a tabernacle in their camp, miracles performed, judgments leveled, prophecies fulfilled, until ultimately the last sign that would be given is the resurrection of his son. Jesus is going to say in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, when people are demanding yet another sign of God's faithfulness, And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so too will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so, yes, we still have rainbows as signs of God's covenant faithfulness, but we have more than rainbows. We have an empty tomb. We have the risen Lord Jesus himself as the ultimate sign of God's covenant faithfulness. Genesis 6 said that Noah found favor in God's eyes. How? Because verse 8 says he did all that God commanded him. When it didn't make sense, when people mocked him for it, when he didn't have all the answers to all of the questions like, um, I kind of live in a mountain in a desert. And he did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah trusted God. He obeyed and followed God by faith. Hebrews eleven seven 7 says it this way. 
by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What Noah and the ark and the flood point us to is not some Indiana Jones-style treasure hunt for the remains of a large boat on the top of Mount Ararat. They don't point us to a scientific reconstruction of the ark or even a geological reconciliation of the black mat. Genesis 6-9 points us to the covenant faithfulness of God. And as a people who live on this side of the cross of Calvary, people who live on this side of the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus, we can understand that this eternal covenant of God comes to us through him. That the plans of God all hinge on and work through him. That these eternal promises of God find their yes and amen in him. All of these signs that angels and prophets longed to look into, they point us to him as the only righteous one who can take us safely through the sea of God's wrath and bring us out the other side. If, like Noah, we will trust him. Let's pray. Father, when we consider these things and we think, who are we that you're mindful of us? Surely we're no better than Noah. We're no better than those who built the Tower of Babel. We're no, we're no better than Judas. And yet, your promises are faithful and true. And your covenant is from everlasting to everlasting. Would you grant us by your spirit the faith to obey and to follow you even when we don't understand, even when we have questions, even if people mock us as they did Noah, that one day we might be carried safely through your wrath and judgment in the arms of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.